You're listening to Having a Chat, the show where we talk to interesting people with interesting tastes in music about the music that they love. I'm Alex Spears, and this week on the show, we are chatting with Rio Statics guitar player and singer and West End Phoenix publisher, Dave Bedini. Dave's newspaper, The West End Phoenix, put out this great summer playlist focusing on New Wave, featuring artists from in and outside of Toronto. He is a phenomenal musician in his own right and has lots of stories to tell, so I'm very excited to have Dave Bedini with us to chat about some music. This is Having a Chat. Dave, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, pleasure. Um, so the first thing I, I like, I so we're gonna focus on the um, here comes new wave or here comes the new wave uh, summer playlist. Obviously, we're no longer really in summer, but I I love getting this in the mail. I love just sort of reading the stories that were in it. But I, I'm I'm interested just in the West End Phoenix more broadly. It seems like you guys put in a lot of effort to kind of keep it old school. At least that's my sense. You know, when uh, when newspapers, partic- like most notably the Globe and Mail, are sort of shrinking down their size, you guys have still got like the big, the big, big paper. You know, th- th- there's a lot of kind of cool music that can be explored, uh, particularly in the Canadian context in the way that you do here. What, what drives keeping it old school in the way that you do and, and, and what motivated the decision to, to look at new wave in the way that you've done here? Uh, well, I think, I think one of the challenges, you know, and, and really not worth doing unless there are challenges to, to meet head on. But one of, one of the essential challenges was to figure out how, you know, a print newspaper could exist uh, you know, in our in twenty in twenty twenty one, or you know, more specifically, I guess twenty eighteen, which is when we started. But or even twenty, geez, has it's five years. Sorry if my 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 dates are a little bit shuffled. But anyways, just when we first trying to figure out how it could exist as a modern entity, and on at face value, I think if you did, you know, um, hold one of the broadsheets in your hands you would it would be kind of you know it would seem very very sort of retro or traditional or old school as you say but um you know you mentioned here comes the new wave the um summer um reader it's as small as a hand purse yeah you know our yeah so so one of the ways that we're we are able to um be modern i guess and exist in the now is by um, being very fluid in terms of and experimental with how we how we publish and, and and what the formatting is like. So, over the course of a calendar year of publishing, we'll we'll publish a couple of you know mini issues. I guess we did a we did a pandemic issue telegrams from home uh, last year that was kind of magazine sized. And we're always kind of, you know, flirting and playing with, you know, how how our publication can kind of look and feel. Um, originally, yeah, it was originally we made it like it's a 30 inch paper um, held, you know, um, at the edges of the pages because these pa- 
we wanted to make it really big. But also, we're not locked in. We can be a little bit meta. We can kind of play with, and we're t- this is a community newspaper essentially. Um, and really, there have been, you know, there are very few community newspapers left, which is one of the reasons we wanted to start. You know, being a musician uh, of long standing, and also somebody who, you know, published a book a year or a book every two years for the better part of 15 years, I don't really have a chance to write much anymore. So when it comes time to do kind of a dedicated, you know, music issue, which usually we do in the summer, um, it was a chance for me to write again, which was nice. So that's that's kind of how this this past August that that issue was created. Yeah, and and it's really just a chance because we're not locked in legacy media, we can you know, really experiment and try all kinds of different things. Well, so I, I'm I'm interested just in the idea of like, I guess creative freedom to a certain extent, in the sense that you you know you've said a number of times that you're not locked in. Um, how do you keep from becoming locked in? Because certainly it's like the the value in being able to you know put out a magazine or you know one of your larger issues or this you know small thing on you know a a summer music playlist that is very very clear to me and in just in terms of your ability and and the western phoenix's ability to express creative freedom how do you keep yourself from being locked in in that way yeah um well i just think you have to be you know um just really kind of self-determined and and uh and being an independent press, we really kind of only answer to ourselves, which which is good. You know, it's also cha- has its challenges for obvious reasons too. So so there's a little bit of a trade off. But I also think you know uh, our identity is kind of a changing identity. I think partly when you when you subscribe to the West End Phoenix, I think you can count on you. You know, you're going to get really great writing and really beautiful photography and interesting illustrations, and you're going to get a lot of quality in the pages, but kind of never really know what's what's going to tumble, you know, through your door slot or slide into your mailbox. And I think that's part of the, I think that's part of the, 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 the draw and the attraction behind the paper. And, you know, that was certainly, certainly true of rheostatics, you know, um, you know, people would come to shows and sort of, you know, uh, be surprised, at times bewildered, but I think ultimately charmed by the fact that, the way we would perform our material was often really different from night to night. And I think that was sort of the appeal of the band. And I think that's kind of one of the appeals of the paper too. Like it's a, and I think, I think what's obvious is there are kind of lively minds at play that are trying to do different things with, with what we, what we have. Well, yeah. And, and I, I, like having, having never, seen the Rio Statics live, unfortunately, um, I can, I can certainly say that, you know, th- the idea of a show being slightly, slightly different each night is, is something that's, that's really remarkable. And, and just, you know, from, from personal experience with the paper, I subscribed to it relatively recently, not knowing what to expect. My entire experience with it up until this latest issue was very, um, music heavy, just knowing you and your background, and then obviously this um, new wave playlist. But it was funny this latest issue. I um, I had just come back from California, and where I had done a bunch of surfing. And I'm I'm not, I'm by no means a surfer, but I had you know 
tried my hand at it while I was out there. And I came back <laughs> wishing that there was a spot in Toronto to surf. And then my mom hands me the copy of the West End Phoenix that came in the mail with a giant picture <laughs> of a guy surfing in Mimico on the front. There you go. So, uh, so that was, that was a, an extremely welcome surprise. Well, I think that's, you know, um, uh, that's great. And, and, uh, you know, that was kind of, again, one of the sort of challenges was, okay, we're going to write about, you know, this, this, this Western um, part of the city. Um, and, you know, how can we, you know, what are the stories that we can tell from this neighborhood that haven't really been told before? And as soon as we stumbled on, you know, um, us, the, the Surf the Greats organization and found out that there was this really interesting and lively surfing community you know, uh, to the west west part of the city, it was well, I and mean, that's a story that I had never read before, or, or uh, you know, it was a story that I wasn't aware of. So, so that's always really, really fun too to kind of, and that's really the driving force in a way behind the paper. You know, I always sort of say that it's a peek between the houses a little bit. You know, like just to to kind of look at a neighborhood, and and that was that's been a challenge for us to write about our neighborhoods that we know quite int- intimately, and we wouldn't have started the paper really if we didn't know the neighborhoods well. Um, but to also discover that which kind of exists right under our noses and, and, and perspectives and ideas and angles that we hadn't really come up with before. So, so um, that's always a thrill when you can portray familiar places in unfamiliar ways. And that was certainly the case with that cover story. Yeah, exactly. Having spent some time in Mimico, see, it, it blew my mind. It blew my mind. Anyway, so um, let's get into, into the song choices. Um, we're going to kick off with um, you know, and and everything that's th- that we're talking about is is in the the summer playlist. Um, here comes the new wave. Um, but first off, an absolute classic. Um, Phil Collins in the air tonight. Uh, th- this one's an interesting one because, even despite me being a drummer, I was first exposed to this song in The Hangover, and I think that that's probably the case yeah. for many people in my generation. Um, what uh, what do you like about uh, Phil Collins? I mean that that just that song for me, um, uh, it just kind of uh, uh, rings a, a couple of bells. One is, you know, I remember, I think like our second or third time ever in the studio, we um, we went and recorded a song um, at the early um, uh, Comfort Sound Studios on Dufferin. I remember coming in from Etobicoke, which is where I grew up, you know, um, going to that studio and finding myself, the studio was literally like two minutes from where I live today. But um, I remember thinking, oh my God, like, where am I? I'm in the dirty heart of the city. I'm in Dufferin. This is, what is Dufferin? You know, like, and uh, we, but we did, we laid down, I remember the drum track. It, we, we, we tracked it using largely kind of ambient mics. Um so not close mic to so um mics that were distant from the drum kit and um that had it, that had a real big boomy room sound and i remember like you know all of us being really excited because it sounded like the drum sound for you know for the for in the air tonight the field of collins uh song which which was a really innovative um drum sound largely um and uh, that's Hugh Padgham, I think, is the engineer that came up with that drum sound. Um, he worked with Jeff Emmerich, and um, he produced, produced a lot of really great early new wave records, and that was certainly one of them. Um, and also, 
we did a concert uh, about a month ago at the Junction Craft Brewery, which was a fundraiser for the West End Phoenix. It was called News Aid. It was a recreation of the set at, at, at Wembley, the, the Live Aid set. And um, Lucas Silvera, even though the song was performed in Philly, um, Lucas Silvera, a local um, brilliant uh, singer, songwriter, musician, um, uh, he perf- he performed that song that uh, that afternoon, and it just it, it's it's just killed, you know. And it's one of those songs that goes from very very quiet, quiet and kind of small to large. Yeah, like, like massive, you know? massive, like in massive, you know, like just a yeah. almost immediate switch. It's crazy. Totally, totally. Yeah. So yeah. So it was great to hear that song um, played that way. And it just reminded me of how great it is. Yeah, it seems it seems to me like that like that song would be a tough one. Like I would be horrified of trying to cover this song just because it's one of these ones that's so near and dear to everyone's heart. So well, and uh, it's pretty it's, yeah, it's pretty spare too. Like the instrumentation behind behind that's like it's kind of drums and voice. Yeah, and there's a little which is yeah, unless you unless you you know unless you can sing well and command that song yeah it, it's um it's it's perilous but um yeah i wouldn't want to do it either but Lucas <laughs> just, brilliant yeah. happy to hear it So next up, uh, we're going to talk about uh, L'Etranger. Um, Charlie Angus, uh, obviously now a member of Parliament. Andrew Cash, a former member of Parliament. Uh, Charlie's been on the show before, um, and it was great having him on. I, I, I find um, punk rock musicians who go into politics to just be endlessly fascinating um, as, you know, a I wouldn't say I'm a punk rock musician, but certainly a musician who is going into politics. Um, what uh, what do you like about this band? And and they they're not particularly active at this point. So you know what what about them sort of rings true throughout the years? We um yeah we first encountered L'Etranger, and the story is is told in in the issue, and I don't really bring it back to my personal experience. I let this story kind of stand on its own, but the the context is we were, I think we were, it was our first ever um, out of town show, real sex, the Kent Hotel in Kitchener, Waterloo, um, which was a strip joint in the day and they had bands at night. And we got booked there uh, as an opening act for Le Tranger. And um, we did our set and uh, we finished our set and waited for the guys to come from Toronto to 
uh, do their headlining set, and um, they they were late, and the pr- the promoter um, came up to us and said, um, "You guys like go back on and play some songs," and we like only knew eight songs, so we were like, "No, <laughs> you know, we didn't have any, we had no repertoire." And then um, just as it was seeming dire, like the band wasn't going to show up. The door burst open and they 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 appeared, um, all you know leather jackets, ripped torn jeans, um, and kind of you know really flushed um, straight out of the van. And and they had just come from opening up for the Dead Kennedys, where they were driven from the stage in a hail of spit and bile, um, and and escaped effectively, you know the concert hall with their skin. Um, and when, when we saw them come through the door, you know, and they you know, dropped their bags and got their guitars and were on stage within 20 minutes of arriving, it just, for us, it was a real, uh, uh, you know, it was, it was a chance to sort of see a band, like to see what a, being in a band really meant. Um, and, you know, they were far more seasoned than us at that time. And it just sort of showed us what you kind of have to go through in order to answer the bell to play. You know, you kind of, no matter what you've gone through, you kind of have to put it behind you to, 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 you know, attack what you're doing next. And that's the first time I ever met those guys. And, you know, Andrew lives around the corner from me and I just blurred Charlie's new book, which is coming out. And, you know, Andy and Chuck, they were, you know, and Bruce Thielen as well, the, the keyboard player has some great stories in this issue as well. Pete Duff and the drummer, but, they were pretty early. They were an early, you know, pace car for Toronto music, which was emerging out of its kind of hard rock cover band in nature, really, which is what it was kind of locked in um, throughout the the late seventies and stuff. The punk stuff, notwithstanding, but but Letranger were like a real kind of. It provided a lot of hope for a lot of bands that. That's you know a group that was righteous and and a bit different and um, really wore their hearts on their sleeves could achieve some degree of of support popularity notoriety and and that was certainly the case with them. Yeah, I mean, it, it, so first first of all, uh, it, it's funny that you mentioned the the Dead Kennedys gig because um, when when Charlie was on the show, he he said that he and Andrew Cash are proudly the only members of Canadian Parliament who have ever opened for the Dead Kennedys, which I, yeah, that's which, hilarious. <laughs> which I just love. Absolutely that's love cool. that. Um, but it's, they, at least sonically to me, have always struck me as one of these bands that was kind of on the bridge of the sort the punk new wave kind of divide. Uh, is, is that your experience? And, and, and did you witness sort of any evolution uh in that sound as you sort of got to know them over the years yeah i mean uh yeah i think they were there was they were certainly they were in between a lot of those genres for sure they were also you know there was a kind of a kind of a hard folk kind of element right the song that that's sort of chosen here taken away is kind of like that you know andy it's an andrew cash acoustic Song. So I think they were kind of a bit ahead of there, t- there too, where this is not all of their repertoire, of course, but at times it was kind of, you know, folk music with like a razor's edge, I guess. And that kind of kind of music that was certainly not to become popular for, uh, for 
you know, for decades, you know, where folk music, folk and punk seemed a lot closer um, than they were, but they, they were, they were, that was the case with those guys for sure. Right. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's certainly fascinating because, you know, now having done this show, it's interesting just hearing the number of sort of newer punk, not quite punk bands, but like punk adjacent bands that are heavily, heavily influenced by folk music. So I, I sure. appreciate the fact that they were, they were really onto something. Next up, we're going to talk about Heaven by the Psychedelic Furs. Um, what do you what do you like about the Psychedelic Furs and uh, and why this song? Well, first of all, they were really friendly. You know, in the in the in the FA, I talk about meeting Richard Butler, and you know, he he was such a such a pop star. You know, I think when I met him for the first time, he was he came swanning across the restaurant at the Westbury Hotel in either a bathrobe or a kimono or maybe a combination of both, and smoking a menthol cigarette. And uh, was just really I don't know uh, friendly, uh, but cool, you know. But just just lovely, and um, it was nice to kind of meet a pop star that was really generous, had a lot of patience for a young writer. You know, was really really good to to to, to his to his admirers, to his fans. Unpretentious, I guess. He, even though it, could, it would have been so easy for him to be pretentious, I think. Because, right, of like, course. Yeah, uh, music of that of that era. You know, he wasn't Morrissey. You know, he was certainly a a, a, a gentler version of of the British lead singer in a really cool band. And they didn't really. I think they really let their music really kind of change lives, and they really weren't at the edge of a vanguard of a movement. They're just really good. Certainly, songs from that that first record, and Heaven is one of them. It's a beautiful song. It's a. It's, Sounds great today, and they didn't really have a super long career either. But they were also a band that, you know, were really they're quite popular quickly um, in Toronto. You know, they were kind of band that could, you know, sell out the concert hall for a couple of nights and and play on the radio all the time. And, and also the kind of band where kids in in my school who like you know hated punk rock and hated new wave and thought everybody was a freak and a weirdo or or whatever, you know. Um, would hear bands like like that and kind of go, okay, I guess this music is kind of okay right. after all, right? It was just, it, 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 yeah, it's sort of, they were a real bridge band, I think, for a lot of people that, for whatever reason, were held back from like yeah. interesting music, were able to kind of, you know, I'm a little bit ambivalent about, you know, people who cross that bridge anyways, because 
we didn't need them, you know, but, um, but it was, yeah, no, but it was good for those bands that they were able to play for a wider audience um, who embraced that music. Yeah. Well, so it's like uh, their name came up in a, um, a podcast I was listening to the other day about um, great movie soundtracks. It seemed my understanding of their history, although it's a limited one, um, is that their song "Pretty in Pink" was really yeah that that was kind of a thing that served as the sort of the bridge for them sort of gaining some more mainstream notoriety. Um, but but I also think that 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 was true for a lot of new wave bands at the time is being included on on those john hughes soundtracks well, john like, hughes yeah totally. like simple and minds simple. to me comes yeah, exactly. to mind as totally. like a as totally. a big one huge yeah it wouldn't have played a huge role for me because i was a record junkie and i you know knew yeah, all those course. bands and loved all those bands but um oh yeah man and in america for sure like canada was always ahead anyways in terms of new wave and over States, but yeah, it definitely uh, broke. It broke new wave. Those those movies broke new wave in America for for all those men. Definitely. All right. Uh, next up is Adrian Miller. What song again? Sorry, I don't. I don't know. I thought I had written that down. Um, what song did? Yeah, you the wanna... 20th Century Rebels from the first record, FBI. That was. Um, and I'm seeing Adrian next week, and I haven't seen him for ages. But that was just you know the 20th Century Rebels, Messenger, Leroy Sibyls, um, the Satellite. You know, in in Toronto in late 70s through the 80s, there was a large um, reggae. Calypso, salsa, um, samba, you know, it, it, was, it was really, you know, it reflected, I think, sort of the Toronto that we, that we know today um, was, was, was kind of kick-started, I think, by the music scene, you know, um, we were talking about Altamoda earlier and stuff, and I think about, you know, bamboo, the bamboo, and sort of about, about those, those scenes where it was every culture was together, you know, um, sharing ideas and playing music and seeing each other's bands. And 20th Century Rebels were just, they're a powerhouse, you know, they're just a powerhouse band. And um, Adrian, you know, is a pint sized. I maybe wouldn't want me saying that, but he was like, <laughs> he was a, he was a very, very commanding and lead singer, even though he was, you know, um, not the biggest dude, but, um, you know, a great singer and um, 
it was great to go and see what they did and hear them and then kind of bring it back into your, and even if you didn't, you know, even if you didn't, you know, borrow, um, you know, texturally or in terms of arrangement from the music, uh, or even melodically for that matter, you kind of really got a sense of, uh, what it meant to kind of play together, I guess, you know, all, all the musicians, because 20th Century Rebels are a big band, so all all the musicians kind of on the same page, you know, working in the same direction, you know, that's just such an important part of reggae music in general, right? And um, so that was really interesting to sort of see night after night from all those bands that I mentioned and sort of apply it to the way like four skinny white kids from Etobicoke you know, we're supposed to do it, right? Right. Just yeah. to, to, to learn about, you know, in, in reggae especially, you just find your lane, right? You find your pocket within the song and you execute it within kind of the engine of the drum and bass and everybody working together. And and they, they were a band that we would have taken a lot of that from in those days, for sure. Well, so and they, I, I don't think most people would necessarily consider them a ska band, but, you know, reggae is obviously largely ska adjacent in many ways. Um, and ska to me is is such an important part of a genre like new wave. You know, obviously it's, it's a fairly new wave in and of itself is a fairly broad genre category. Um, but to me ska makes up an important part of that um what's your sort of take on on ska's role in the new wave movement more broadly um yeah it was black and white kids running bands together being together hugely important symbolically culturally yeah massive and and you know all of that delivered um with such sort of buoyancy and freedom and fun and Again, like with with I think a lot of ska music, it's sort of simple parts just like fit fit together perfectly, you know. So for for guitar young guitar player that like even when you play chords, you know, in ska music, you know, you don't even have to know how to press down a chord really because <laughs> so much of it is kind of you know you're being so percussive and stuff and. You know, I remember playing Scott in the beginning, you know, using like one finger, right? For like, so, so that's great. It's great. It's, it's, anyone can do it, you know? And, but yeah, it was, it was, it was massive to, you know, as a, as a suburban kid, a white suburban kid to go, um, you know, to go see, you know, um, multi ethnic, multi racial, racial bands from everywhere um, playing this, this kind of music. And, the nature of the music just celebrated that fact because it was so so fun and so buoyant and so stuffed uplifting I guess and, and even when it was deeply political there was something that was still just really joyful about it yeah well and that, yeah that, that, that's certainly been my experience that, that I started getting really into ska when kind of I wasn't angry enough for hardcore anymore like that that was where you know I, I still had felt like I had something to say but I wasn't quite as pissed off in saying it. <laughs> so ska certainly was, was meaningful to me in that part of my life
on that note, um, we can get into the English beat, uh, the final the final song on your list um, with Mirror in the Bathroom. Given, you know, obviously we've been talking about Scott for a bit, but what is it about uh, the English beat that you like? They're a pretty unique band. I think just the way they, you know, sonically they were so interesting. The way their guitars and bass sounds together, that chippy sound, that upstroke, that kind of palm tamping the, the string. Again, really super percussive, percussive, very African, probably largely borrowed or stolen from African guitar playing, I think. But uh, yeah, again, like, you know, Dave Wakeling and Rankin Roger, two frontmen, black and white. You know, they had Saxa, the Jamaican British legend. Like, that was another thing, too, like an old an old person in a band. What? Is that <laughs> supposed to be a thing? But, you know, I think I described him as kind of like an ancient mariner, you know. Um, but that was that was really eye opening, too. It's like, oh, somebody in their 70s can actually be playing music that is important, you know, yeah, and yeah. contemporary. Um, and again, those guys, too, it's a lesson I learned early on, like from the Ramones after meeting them. But, you know, it also just showed us that you could be really great at what you did, you know, um, and you could be popular, too, and you didn't have to be a d- you know, because that was the that's the thing, you know, growing up, you know, reading Cream magazine and about Eric Clapton and Robert Plant and, and you know, whatever, musicians for that and how they were, you know, the, you know, bad seeds and you know, they lived on the edge and they were all of it, you know, this elevated kind of creature and realizing when you meet, when you met the bands of the New Wave Scott era, um, they weren't like that at all. I mean, there's was, was obviously some of them, but most were pretty decent individuals and it was a good template, you know, to learn that you could, could be a decent person and be really, really great at what you did. Yeah, yeah, just, you know, <laughs> go out and just put positivity out into the world. I mean, and, and that that to me is is something that, you know, in, in the Toronto music scene that I'm still pretty well aware of, I think is, is just there, there are, there will inevitably be bands that, you know, think that they're really, really hot. Shit. And then, but then there are also bands who are indeed very, very hot, shit, but are also just like the most decent down to earth folks. And that, that always, I think that that, that's, that's like a timeless quality almost. There's that story about, um, you know Sebastian Bach. It's this. It was a story from this week about you know, like somebody tweeted him and said, uh, "Listen, you know I'm coming to your show, and I can't remember what city it was in California, or maybe even Florida." And said, "Any way that you know I can get a photo with you after the show?" And Sebastian Bach tweeted back a one-word response, and it was "No" was his response, and it made me think of you know those times we toured with the tragically hip and I'd be at a bar, you know, in whatever city we were playing with Gore Downey and, you know, a guy would come up to him and sing back his lyrics to him and have these really, really uncomfortable moments and where fans were invading his space. And just to see how, you know, gracious and patient and elegant he was, you know, with with um, with fans and realizing that's how that's the better way, and that's the way you know you have to carry yourself. Uh, you know, if if you're gonna you know survive, because 
that comes with the territory, you know, and it, it can all be dealt with a lot of different ways, but I think it's always, it's more admirable to deal with it that way. A hundred percent. Well, I remember, um, when I was growing up, I was really into this punk band called fucked up. Um, and and they, whenever I would go see them, I was always amazed. So Damien, their lead singer would literally hop into the crowd after they were done and would talk to every single fan that wanted to talk to him. Like, and, and you know, he, he would spend like an, an additional hour just with people waiting around just to like you know, yeah. say to him how much his, his music meant to them and stuff. Like what, what, a, what a beautiful thing that was to witness and, and, and inspiring for me as well. Totally. Um, all right, so we are going to wrap up now, Dave, but we, we always, at the end of the show, give guests a chance to kind of to plug whatever they've got going on. Um, I'm, assume, I'm assuming you can uh, <laughs> plug a subscription link for the West End Phoenix, which we'll, <laughs> which we'll put in the, uh, in the show notes uh, for sure. folks to check out, but, uh, but take it away. Yeah, no, go to westendphoenix.com to subscribe to the paper. We deliver it locally, and we also mail we mail right across the country and around the world. And it's $75 a year, and we publish around eight or nine issues every, every year. And, um, you know, especially people who live in Toronto, you're supporting the artists, the writers, the illustrators, the photographers who live in your neighborhood, and you get a chance to foster and keep alive journalism um, in your community um, and in your city. And, you know, we need journalism to be free and independent and nourished in order for our democracy to be strong. And we need to keep telling our stories to each other. And, you know, by supporting us, uh, it allows us to pay our writers well, um, industry standard, even though we're not supported at all by granting bodies or any any kind of other support yeah and it's a beautiful thing too so uh encourage you to do that and go to the website westernfenis.com and hit subscribe and come on aboard all right thanks dave and thanks very much for your time appreciate it my pleasure nice talking to you thanks very much to dave for joining us this week as always, you can find full versions of this show wherever you get your podcasts or at havingachat.com. The show is produced by myself and Alex Anderson. Social media and marketing materials are done by Petra Walker, and theme music is composed by Duncan Briggs and Sugar Glass. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.